Jesus' message this morning is all about readiness, so I hope you're ready to listen. You should be. Good man. Let's pray. Father, we're approaching your word, so we need to have our hearts prepared and um, ready for the things you have to share to us, and we thank you so much that you've given so much to us in the Gospels, Lord, the words of our, our Lord and Savior, to tell us the future and to tell us what it means for us. So we ask for your help in Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, this is about preparation and readiness, and there does come a time in life when it's too late, right? I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen when it's just too late. Too late to finish the project on time, too late to study properly for that test, too late to, too late to realize you've been had, too late to come clean and admit you were wrong without some consequences coming from that. Too late to uh, preserve your reputation, sometimes. In all sorts of ways, a, a lack of diligence, a lack of preparation, or maybe even a lack of character can leave us where we don't want to be. And when you're not prepared and not ready, things can end badly, right? Jesus has been elaborating for us in the Olivet Discourse so far, this whole theme of spiritual readiness. Chapter 24 and chapter 25, it's one unit. It's supposed to be answering the when and how questions. Remember, it all began when the disciples asked Jesus at the beginning of the chapter 24, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You know, these things being the destruction of the temple and all kinds of things like that. And Jesus tells them, he, but he spends way more time on the unexpected nature of his coming rather than on the details of what's going to happen when he comes. So the suddenness of finding yourself in the presence of the judge of all the earth when you're not ready is more important than knowing all the little details about what's going to happen in the future. That stuff's interesting. This stuff is essential. So he says in verse 42 of chapter 24, therefore be on the alert. He says in verse 44 of chapter 24, you be ready too. And he begins to tell these stories to illustrate the, the need to be spiritually ready. He tells three stories, and last week we looked at the first one, uh, 24, 45 through 51, the story designed really to speak to the leaders of the church, the church age that's coming, people like me and like your elders here. The, the new story, beginning chapter 25, is for everybody. And the, the key players here are not leaders, like in the previous parable, a person of authority or responsibility, but just regular folks, regular folks who have a job to do. So this is a parable now. We're looking at parables, right? So it's a life situation. It's designed to deliver to you a spiritual point that's easy to understand. So it's not about, it's about a wedding, but it's not about a wedding. Unless you think of the uh, wedding of Christ as the bridegroom and the, the eternal existence with his people Israel as kind of a wedding feast when he comes, that's, that's certainly appropriate. And I think that's why Jesus chooses this um, but he chooses this illustration of a wedding and the, the central figures are some girls who have a role to play in the wedding, really before the wedding. Why a wedding scene? Because God is often presented as the bridegroom in the Old Testament. So they would be very familiar with that. They don't know yet about him being the bridegroom coming, but, well, the disciples know, but um, those, that's the idea. So Old and New Testament, God or Christ are presented as the bridegroom coming. And that's, 
it's very convenient for this picture he wants to portray here because he gets that whole idea in. But he's the groom, and the church is his bride, and the image is one of, you know, you're talking about a wedding, so we're talking about commitment and loyalty and covenantal love and intimacy and an expectation of fidelity and all of those things. So for Jesus to picture the Messiah himself as the bridegroom is very fitting. And it's an idea the Jews would readily understand from the Old Testament where God presents himself as Israel's husband. But another good reason for the wedding as an illustration is because everybody in that culture can fully relate to it as a matter of preparedness. Well, I guess we can relate to it too. I mean, you don't have to do a lot of preparation to be married, but those of you that have been involved in large weddings, you know, there's a lot of preparation, a lot of work, a lot of um, anxiety, right? Getting ready, being ready. And of course, um, their culture was different the way a wedding was handled. So in a first century Hebrew wedding, the groom would go to the bride's home and there'd be some sort of little activities over there and then he would bring her back with her part of the wedding party back to his house and that's where they would have a wedding feast and that's where the actual wedding took place. So that's the picture you have to keep in mind here. We don't know a whole lot about first century weddings, but we know that, that that's how it played out because we have records of that. So of course at the groom's house, you have to be ready. You have to be ready because the big party's coming, right? And to do that properly, they would send out a little advanced party that would be part of the way down the road and when the groom and his bride and their party were coming towards the groom's house, they would embrace them, light the way, welcome them, and follow, bring them in. And that was usually assigned to young women, unmarried women, virgin girls. So um, that was their job. And there was the possibility, and maybe it was the custom, we don't know, but that, that by the time they came, it would be dark. So these girls would bring lights, little lamps, oil lamps to light the way. So you know how weddings are, everybody's all apprehensive about everything being done right, and this story is about ten girls who have the job to meet the groom and the bride. So let's start with verse 1 in chapter 25. The kingdom of heaven will be comparable to, okay, so it's not about a wedding, it's really about the kingdom of heaven, Good, just want to make sure you got that. The kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were prudent. Prudent means wise. You don't hear that word very much anymore. Too bad, huh? Because <laughs> we need a lot of prudence in our society. But don't get caught up in this as a real-world event. Again, it's an illustration. And you see how Jesus begins the story? It's about the kingdom of heaven. So we're looking for a spiritual lesson, and we find one right away. Five of them were wise, and five of them were prudent. So there's something we need to pay attention to. The foolish and the wise. So um, that's our contrast. And it's an example from something familiar in life so they could grasp that right away about the coming of the kingdom of God. So what are the girls doing? They're going out to their designated place. They're waiting. Um, they're prepared. They're supposed to be prepared. Now this story, like the one we looked at last time, it's, a, it's an in-house story. I mean, this is for God's people. It's given for us who are insiders. It's not about the world. It's not about the pagans. It's not about the idolaters. These 10 girls are bridegroom people. So they have a relationship with him. Um, they're waiting for the Messiah. They represent professed believers. That's what they represent, professed believers, church-going gals. 
if you want to think of them that way. So they're present in God's household, the church. They profess Jesus. And these gals are all on the same team. They have the same task. They're waiting for the same bridegroom. They're all, as, as self-described Christians, they're all attendants on Christ. That's what their job is. They're tasked to be ready for his coming, and that is why they are there. So they know what their duty is. So why are some foolish and why are some prudent? They're all there together. Well, verse 3 says, when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. So the main idea is the prudent were prepared and the foolish were not prepared. The first five were Girl Scouts. The other five were not Girl Scouts. I don't know. Are Girl Scouts supposed to be prepared? I mean, the Boy Scouts are. But um, they weren't prepared. So what did the prudent have? They had oil for their lamps in case the bridegroom was delayed or they came at night or whatever. Oil enough to see them through any delay. So it's always a question of parables. Whenever you're studying the parables, especially the parables of Jesus, but throughout Old Testament parables as well, you want to be careful about making every little detail mean something because sometimes it's just to help convey the main idea. You always want to look for the main idea. And the main idea definitely is being ready, being prepared. But sometimes the details do have a meaning and Jesus sometimes when he explains parables he gives meaning to the details. So people have talked a lot about the oil here. Is the parable just about being prepared? I mean, that is the main idea. But many scholars do see significance in the oil, which provides illumination. And oil has very deep roots in the Bible um, for the Messiah and your relationship with the Messiah, especially as a representation of the Holy Spirit. I mean, oil just seems to be always representative of him. So it's the Spirit who awakens us. It's the Holy Spirit who turns on our spiritual light, if you will. It's the Holy Spirit who makes the truth of God in Christ and the glory of the gospel real to us. He does that work. So I think the oil probably does represent that very thing that the wise possessed and the foolish did not possess. That is the salvation that's wrought in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So these are church girls. They're on the same team outwardly, but inwardly they're different people. They're, um, some possess the Spirit and some don't possess the Spirit. And I mean salvation. We're talking about, well, we'll get to the details of this. But let's talk about the oil first. Old Testament oil. So in, these guys are raised on the Old Testament. The disciples Jesus is talking to, they're going to think about oil in these sort of contexts. Prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed with oil as a symbol of their empowerment by the Spirit of God. God commanded Moses to anoint Aaron um, and his sons with oil to consecrate them as priests. You might remember Samuel. He anointed little David with oil to indicate his being chosen as a king. In fact, 1 Samuel 16, 13, it says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So, even right there, it's actually connected with the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower David for his kingly uh, future. First Kings 19.16, God commands Elijah to anoint Elisha as a prophet of God, his replacement or his uh, Padawan learner there. So prophet, priest, and king all anointed with oil for their respective duties or offices. Of course, those are the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. In theology, 
The word Messiah, you know what that word means? Anointed, the anointed. Yeah, so it's all deeply connected with this being anointed with oil. Probably the most interesting, and you might want to turn back to Zechariah chapter 4. One of the most interesting and direct scriptures linking oil to the Holy Spirit is in one of the wild visions of Zechariah. Zechariah is a book of amazing, sometimes bizarre-seeming visions that God gave him. They all have definite meaning, but one of the most interesting ones is in chapter 4, And at the very beginning of it, the chapter, it says, the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. He said, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with its bowls on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. It's kind of like a menorah. It's a seven um, branched candle thing with seven lamps on the top of each, each one. Now you could have, they could be designed with one wick or two wicks or four wicks or seven wicks the, the, at the top. So the oil's sitting there and you can make a lot of light that way. So there's seven branches and then there's seven lights on each, on each one in this particular thing. It said also, verse three, two olive trees were by it, one on the right side of the bowl and one on the left side of the bowl. So central is this seven lamp lampstand like the menorah and these olive trees are on each side and they've actually got pipes running down into the lamp there so what does that mean verse 4 then I said to the angel who was speaking to me saying what are these my lord so the angel who was speaking with me answered and said do you not know what these are and I said no my lord he said this is the word of the lord to Zerubbabel Zerubbabel is the governor the he's not a king really but he's the ruler of the returned exiles from his from Babylon and he's having a hard time so here's the message for him not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the lord of hosts That couldn't be more clear. The Spirit of God, in other words, is the sustaining power of the believer to accomplish God's will. And he was supposed to know that. And these trees are constantly feeding oil into this lamp. And that's the Holy Spirit who constantly feeds his presence and power to us to do that. Zerubbabel had to have that encouragement. So oil and the Holy Spirit are are profoundly linked together in Old Testament Imagery, And when we come to the New Testament, we learn from Jesus' own mouth that there's no salvation without a direct work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit awakens the heart. The Spirit grants the new birth to individuals as an act of divine grace. If you want to jump forward to the New Testament, uh, if you want to turn, you can. You don't have to. You can just listen. But John chapter 3 is the famous encounter with Nicodemus at night. Nicodemus was a very highly ranked leader in the religion of Israel in the New Testament in Jerusalem he comes to visit Jesus secretly and they have this conversation and he asks Jesus a question in uh, John chapter 3 verse 2 he says Rabbi we know that you are from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him and Jesus said well thank you very much I appreciate that no he doesn't say that he says truly truly I say to you whenever he says that right something really important is coming not that he says unimportant things but that's like mega important. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, 
He cannot see the kingdom of God. So there's something you have to have, and that's this new birth. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus, there's not in every manuscript, but it goes, he went, oh. no, he, he didn't really do that. But he was like, come on, I'm talking about spiritual things. So Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So obviously he wasn't talking about, it. For, for a Jewish Bible teacher to be so earthbound that he's thinking, oh, born again, how you get back into your mother? How's that exactly? And not understand this work of the Spirit. So Jesus is explaining it to him very carefully. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is, that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So being born of the Spirit is a necessary requirement to be in God's kingdom because, you know what? People don't need moral reformation. They need a new birth. It's nice when some bad person starts to behave better, but that has nothing to do with God or the kingdom of God. You need a new birth. You need a changed heart. The Old Testament calls it taking out your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. That's the promise of the new covenant is actually that God is going to do that. He's going to write his law on your heart. He, all these amazing things happen internally to us. It's a spiritual birth. It's an actual change in our being. And the Spirit grants that birth, Jesus said. There's no spiritual life without the Spirit of God just as there's no light from a lamp unless there's oil in the lamp to, to feed that light. So I don't think Jesus chooses the possession of oil amongst the maidens um, arbitrarily. Uh, he's talking about the prudent ones had the spirit and the foolish ones didn't have the spirit. So remember, all 10 girls are out there to meet the bridegroom. They all have the same job. They're in the same group. They all know their task. They know who he is. He's the bridegroom. He's coming. They're part of the same community. But since this is really about the kingdom of God, as Jesus says, all 10 girls represent people who are waiting for the king to come, the Messiah to come, the anointed one. Some have oil and some don't. Some have oil and some don't, which means, I, I think, some have the spirit and some don't. Some have the new birth and some don't. So to some it's, it's religion, and to some it's life and peace and joy and hope and devotion to the coming king. Those are different things. Night and day difference, life and death difference. It all makes all the difference because there's only two ultimate destinies. There's only two ends. At some point, what C.S. Lewis called the great divorce, everything, all of humanity is divided in two directions at the, at the end. And these destinies are determined by whether or not we have oil in our possession, if you will. In other words, if we have that new birth, that work of the Spirit in us. Let's, let's go back to the parable and see how it plays out here. It says, while the bridegroom, verse 5, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. 
But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Verse 11. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. I do not know you. Those who are ready are in. Those who have oil are in. Those who are not ready are out. They don't have oil or they don't seek it until it's too late. How could a bridegroom be so harsh to poor little girls that just want to be part of the wedding and made a mistake? It's not about the wedding. That's a parable. It's about the kingdom of God. And when Jesus starts talking like, truly, truly, I say to you, that's not what the bridegroom says. That's what the Messiah says. So it's all about that. And every warning is being given here for us to be ready for Messiah coming. Now, it's really about him coming, but you could meet the Messiah tomorrow, even though he might come 20 years from now, because a truck might run over you and you might meet the Messiah more suddenly than you're aware. Are you ready? I mean, that's sort of the idea here. Are you ready to meet God? Are you ready to meet judgment? Because if you're not ready and you don't have the oil, you don't have the spirit, you're not reborn, you're not fit to be in his kingdom because that kingdom is for these people that have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. You won't have time when he comes and you won't have time if something happens quickly. You know, there's some... These girls are all religious in the story, so some very religious people will hear Jesus say, I don't know you because religion is not the same as having the new birth. Jesus said, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. That's essential. It's essential. That's what he says. So in verse 12, the bridegroom prefaces those dreadful words with the very words Jesus always uses to introduce major truth. Truly I say to you. Truly I say to you, I don't know you. You can't come in here. This is a private event. And I don't know you. You're not part of me. If the day before the wedding you talked to the ten girls about your, their faith, you said, are you girls Christians? Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. But only five are. They're all church kids. But only five are. Only five make it to the wedding feast, which is the kingdom of God. Only five have the necessary thing, which is the oil, the spirit. Is it fair to make such a sharp distinction, you know, in and out, like just so cut and dried. Is that fair? Um, it's not a question of fairness. You, you, and if you think about it, you don't want it to be a question of fairness. Fairness is never good news to sinful people. And I'm a sinner, so I don't want God to be fair with me. Because fair is you're on the outs. <laughs> I never knew you. I mean, we're all sinful in God's eyes. So only um, 
Fairness means the door is shut on everybody if you want God to be fair. So it's not fair. It's not about that. It's about whether we've had this reality in our lives, the Spirit changing us. So only by the mercy and grace of God through the atoning blood of Christ and embracing that does this transformation in us take place. So don't ask for fairness from God when you need mercy. Never never do that. God, be fair to me. Don't do that. (laughs) Be merciful to me. So the oil of the Spirit, the new birth, is a work of divine grace. It's a gift, a free gift that God does. So there's a very sharp division because you're either alive or you're not alive. You're either born or you're not born, right? You're either born again or you're not born again. So it's just a matter of reality. That's why Jesus is so insistent with Nicodemus, who was a leader of the religion of Israel, religious man, Bible man. You must be born again, Nicodemus. You must be born again. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. Don't be amazed. It's not about what we profess. It's about whether or not God has granted us new life in Christ. The Apostle Paul takes up this same sharp distinction and division. Look at Romans chapter 8. We'll kind of wrap it up here with Romans 8. Now, Romans 8 is good news. In fact, the first verse is like the best news in the whole world. We talked about it on Friday night a little bit. So he starts this portion of this most wonderful reality of what it means to be in Christ with these words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No condemnation. That's that's amazing because... I deserve condemnation. The person in Christ will never receive the condemnation they deserve. That's the amazing thing. And he explains why in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Well, how did it do that? For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That is a very deep passage right there, and I can't unpack all of it, but there's some really main ideas there. One is that the law condemns us. That's why... The law couldn't do it. The law could not get us to a point where there's no condemnation because the law, I break. And because I'm a breaker of God's law, I deserve condemnation, right? But Christ, he did something for me. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He paid the penalty for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, as a human being, he was our representative. So the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, because Christ died for us, he grants us his righteousness, and we are clean before the law. We are justified, is the Bible word. We are right before God, in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you can't be right before God, because he's the one that provides that for you, through his blood, as it says here. But there's something about those that receive this, Great blessing of God, no condemnation. 
They do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There is that change that happens, that transformation. doesn't mean we do it perfectly, but that is our direction. That's our life. That's our heart. So the law couldn't save us because all it could do was show us that we're sinners, but Christ did save us. The requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. In verse 4, he talks about us, see, that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And then he defines us as those who walk not, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So that's that exact same dichotomy that you saw with Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. If, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. There's, you're out or you're in based on whether you're born of the spirit. Flesh and spirit. What is of the flesh is flesh, Jesus said. What is of the spirit is spirit. And Paul's describing the same thing, but as a manner of life, actually two ways of living, according to the flesh, according to the spirit. So the foolish girls in our parable are those who are walking according to the flesh. The wise girls are those who walk according to the spirit. They're all church folk, but they're so different. Their hearts are different. The the foolish For them, it's just not personal. It's not mine. It's just, this is what we do. I was raised in it. I, yeah, I believe it. Yeah, it's all okay. It isn't what they have. It's just what they profess. It's just what they're around. But it's not what they have. Those in the flesh, they see life from a perspective that's totally tied to this world. For them doing anything to God's glory. If you talk about doing something to the glory of God, okay, they, they don't really know what that means. They, they don't get it. It doesn't hit them. It's like, dude, why would I want to glorify God? What is that all about? You know, that, That's just some little internal conversation that might not even be conscious in their heads, but that's kind of how they, what is that? Whereas a born-again person says, yeah, the glory of God. He deserves all glory. He deserves my heart, my life, my love, my adoration. He's, there's nothing greater than a God who is holy and righteous and just but gave his son for my sins and paid this incredible penalty for me who became human like me. That's the reaction of the newborn spirit. The religious person says, yeah, yeah, that's good. I like that. But it doesn't mean much to me, really. I don't think about it very often doesn't make sense to them. So they're religious in a general sort of way, the same way a pagan is religious. But God isn't the center of their affections at all because there's no oil. Try to run your engine without oil. Well, it's the same thing. If the Holy Spirit isn't in your heart, that heart is not Godward. It doesn't think that way. It doesn't move in his direction. It doesn't love him. So those who walk by the Spirit, they, they can't help but consider God's perspective on things. What do you want me to do? What do you think about this situation? They may struggle, we all struggle, but the struggle to be faithful is born out of this genuine love for God and for the glory of God. Those who walk according to the flesh, they just don't get it. In fact, they can't get it. That's what Paul says. Look at verse five, Romans eight. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh 
pay attention to these words. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. See, it might not be active. Oh, I hate God. It might not be that. It's just, it's hostile because it doesn't give him at all what he's due. It doesn't think about that. It's down here. Life is here. So the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. Verse 7 says, not able. It can't obey God. It can't follow God. It can't worship God, that person, because the mind is set on the flesh. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot. Don't have the capacity. Those in the flesh have no capacity to please God. They just kind of see religion as useful, but it's not about God. Their their heart sleeps. It's not awake. Then look at verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's the oil, folks. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And that's why Jesus says at the door, truly I say to you, I don't know you. But if you have the Spirit, if you have the oil, you belong to him and he knows you, you're his. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. No oil, no new birth, the Spirit of God does not reside within. So the person's religion is just earthly, it's a fleshly, it's like all religion. It's just got Jesus' name on it. It's limited, it's man-centered. But those who have the Spirit, wow, they're so different. Look at verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are not under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So there's two paths, there's two natures, there's two ways. One born of the earth and one born of heaven. And we all start the same place, born of earth. But if God by his grace and the spirit moves upon you and you believe in Jesus and you put your trust in him and love God, you're born of heaven. You've got a second birth. The other people just have one birth. But those who walk according to the spirit have a new birth, a second birth. Two paths. So let's go back to the parable and finish it up. Matthew 25, verse 8. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will be not for enough for us and you. So those with oil can't give it to those without oil. I mean, there have been times in my life when I love somebody so dearly, I just wanted to tear my heart out and put it in theirs. Like, I I wanted to will them to believe, to follow Christ. Don't you ever feel like that about people you care about? But you can't do it. 
You can't do it. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. We can't do that. We can share the truth, but if the Holy Spirit doesn't awaken that heart to receive the truth, it won't happen. They have to find it for themselves. And in the parable, while they're off looking for it, the bridegroom comes and the door is shut and it's too late. Too late. They waited too long. And that's what people do. People have all kinds of reasons to put Christ off. Even if they're sort of kind of interested, eh, I'll get around to it. I'm young. Let me live a little first. And then I'll get into the God stuff. Well, what if you're so caught up in the world you never do? You never do do that. That's usually what happens. I'm old. Can't teach an old, teach an old dog new tricks. He'll just have to take me as I am. What if he won't take you as you are? I like being in control of my life. What if God asks me to do something I don't want to do? Well, wait too long, and he will ask you to do something you don't want to do, like depart from me. So don't do that. So you can, you can picture in your mind the girls pounding on the door. Open up! Open up for us, Lord! Truly I say to you, I never knew you. I don't know you. Remember, it's not about a bridegroom being mean to some girls. It's about the God of the universe talking to people who didn't bother to prepare themselves to come to him, to be born again, to accept what he's done, to love him, to give God his due. They just had one task, these girls, one task, and they couldn't be bothered. They represent anyone who doesn't care about their own souls. That's what they represent. People who can't be bothered with the Savior of the world. I'll get around to it. You can't be at the feast in the kingdom without the new birth, without the Spirit. And the parable is explained in the last verse of it there, verse 13. And here's how Jesus applies it. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. It's going to just happen, like a thief coming in the night we talked about before. Never trust in delay, like you've got plenty of time, because you don't know. How many people died in an earthquake the other day in Turkey? How many Chinese people dropped dead of this virus they had no idea they were going to get? Right? Dozens, dozens. It just can happen. You got to be ready now. Seek the grace of salvation. Don't wait to go, oh, I'm out of oil. I, uh, I don't have a spirit. I, uh, I, what are you going to say to God? So you got to give yourself to the redeemer of your soul, heart, soul, and mind today. You have to do it now. It's only right, it's only right to give God his due, to actually withhold from God what belongs to him. It's pretty evil. We have to do that. Don't, don't be like the foolish ones. They're foolish. They're called foolish for a reason. Foolishness is maintaining some form of religion and ignoring the very heart of it. Why would we even think that way, that God can be put off? Foolishness is professing Jesus as the Lord of heaven and earth, but in your heart, never thinking about that at all. Just Foolishness is being presumptuous. You know that word, presumptuous? I like that word. I like big words. I don't remember them, but I like them. 
Presumptuous is you're making an assumption in advance. You're presuming it's all going to work out okay and God has to forgive everybody anyway and I don't need to worry about souls and stuff like that. That's presumptuous. I'm assuming something that isn't true. Foolishness is hearing all about new life in Christ and never seeking it, not being ready. So be wise, be ready, he's coming, and if he waits, you'll be going to see him one of these days. So be ready, and don't put it off. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have told us, you've pointed the way, your warning is clear, delay is absolute foolishness. So free us from spiritual lethargy, from dullness. Quicken us by your spirit, Lord. Bring life to our hearts. Grant us the wisdom to seek you until the spirit is ours. We ask in your name. Amen.